Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. All right, guys, I think we are finally ready to start. <laughs> Thank you all for waiting patiently. This is probably the most complicated event setup we've ever had. We've never had this many different kinds of media happening all at the same time, but we're good to go. Thank you all so much for coming to the Skylight Staff Showcase. Uh, my name is Mary Williams. I'm the events manager here at Skylight. And uh, thank you all for coming and supporting our staff. Um, we have several different things going on tonight, but we're going to kick it off with a very exciting uh, video by our staffer and frequent event host, Carrie Kavashi-Boyle, which she made with Jameson Fry. KK, do you want to come say a few words? So I've been at Skylight Book Books for years and years and years, but I took a two-year break and went to Santa Barbara. And it's so strange, but Santa Barbara is not a lot like Los Feliz. And while I was there, um, I missed the artistic and um, Oh, just the general inspiration of talking to so many of the customers and all of our, our staffers as well. Um, but I met some really strange people when I was in, in Santa Barbara. And this is the first in a series of short films that I'm doing about um, uh, some of the people that I befriended there. And um, when I was choosing what I would show for you guys, I chose one that seems um, literary and a little bit like a short story. So I hope that you enjoy it. shirt off his back, but you'd always know it was his shirt. He would never let you forget that. No. He 
he'd leave his mark. Like with Nicole. My husband comes home and tells me how last night the mafia guy started screaming at Nicole in front of everyone and then left her there at the barn to walk home. So my husband tells me he's driving Nicole home and along the way he starts to think, hey, wait a minute. What if this mob boss thinks I'm hitting on his girlfriend? What if he's the jealous type? the jealous It's dangerous what he's doing. He's tempting fate. He's always tempting fate. But when he puts his hands on me, when I'm in his arms. Jameson. We're going to do a little change here and bring up one of our readers. Uh, next up is Steve Salardino. He's our store manager, uh, in addition to a fiction writer, and he's going to be reading you an excerpt from a longer piece. Steve, where are you? There he is. Come on up. Since you wish you knew how all this stuff worked. Hi. Uh-oh, I think I picked the wrong mic stand. What did I do with my thing? Oh, there it is. Are we recording this? Yes. Okay, good. My name is Steven Salardino, and I am the manager here. And this actually is one of the first times we've done something like this. Um, we've done a few events with other with our staff and stuff, but this is the first time it's come together in this way. Uh, it's pretty amazing. We have books for sale up here too as well, and some zines, kind of a pay what you can thing that we can, you can take a look at afterwards. What I'm gonna read is a short piece that is an excerpt from uh, some stuff that I've been working on for the last lifetime. So about 10 years ago, and it's probably more actually, I had this idea about writing a screenplay for a film that was never to be made. I wanted it to be a screenplay that would be read like a novel, the action transplanted from the movie screen to the reader's mind. The impetus of this story was Too Fast for Love, the first album by Motley Crue. I created a narrative 
based on the songs in the same order as they are on the record. The story takes place in 1983, and that's a year after the record came out, and it involves a group of teenagers coming of age in a time when the pace of the world was just beginning to accelerate into the digital reality we now live in. There's lots of uh, teenage sex and drug use. There's a car chase, a pregnancy, a speed lab. There's a reunion and a death. And there are nine cowbell and lick-laden Molly Crew songs. Recently, I decided I would try to turn this uh, script into a novel while still holding on to part of the screenplay format. As the character, Billy, the main character of the story, he sees his life as an epic rock video. So here is a possible beginning. I am like a camera, or maybe I am a camera. This must be an old and outdated idea. I'm sure someone else said, I am a camera, before I did. Probably somebody in the 70s. Probably somebody famous, like Woody Allen or a French guy. But I totally know what that person was talking about. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you ever walk around and think you're just a lens on a skinny little tripod? Try this. Try saying to yourself, I am just a lens. A glassy sponge on a thin, skinny stick with two twig legs and a pair of Converse. Now you know how I feel. How can I possibly make any judgments? Who is to say what is great and what is right and what is total bullshit? Sometimes the camera is over my shoulder or to the side of me. I walk through my life like it is a movie playing on a screen on the inside of my eyeballs. These scenes play out and there are cuts and swipes and montages and swelling musical scores and all that stuff. Slow motion, fade outs, time jumps. The weird thing is the movie is being made and being played at the same time. I see myself smoke, I see myself go to school, I get out of school, I see myself with friends, we fight, we fuck, we act out our life and we don't know what we are doing. That's the movie this camera is making. This movie starts, like life, with a sex scene. Interior, Becky's bedroom, night. An upper middle class bedroom on a second story of a suburban house in Southern California. Heavy metal posters, Zeppelin, Rush, Molly Crew, and some new wave posters, Devo, Duran Duran, B-52s, are pinned up on the walls. The lighting is muted, some Mexican candles on some shelves and on top of some drawers providing the soft ambience. The camera is focused in a wide single shot of two people fucking. Billy, that's me, 15 years old, brown hair to the neck with long straight bangs, skinny with a long nose, and Becky, 16 years old, short, blonde, pixie-ish, with a big smile and a bunny butt, are, go are going at it, clumsy but kind of cute, on her single bed. There are grunts and moans and some semi-disgusting slobbery sounds. Becky is really into it. She is throwing her head back and grabbing Billy's butt or his shoulders. Billy is really concentrating. He's trying to be really good. <laughs> Becky, yeah, Billy, yeah, come on, I want you. Billy, shh, stop it. Becky, come on, baby, come on, yes. Billy, stop it, stop acting. Billy slows down while Becky continues to thrust up and grind into him. He's looking down at her with concern, but she does not notice. Billy, hey, hey. Becky suddenly stops and looks up at him. Becky, what? Billy, you're acting, this isn't real. She ignores him and grinds and grabs and slams some more. Billy shakes his head and reaches up towards the camera recording this. Becky, come on, let's do it. Let's make a film. Billy sighs. He's reaching up but can't quite reach the camera while on top of her. He turns back towards Becky, kisses her on the forehead, 
then climbs off and walks over to the camera, getting bigger the closer he gets. As Billy gets closer, we see Becky sit on her elbows in the background behind him. She sticks her tongue out and makes a face that is part funny and part fuck you. The screen goes black. This is where Livewire by Molly Crew would crank in from the darkness, and the opening credits would start for my movie. If you have the if you have the record, I suggest you play that track now. The next scenes would go along with the music, cutting back and forth between the names on the screen and the scenes from my life. Since we are all playing ourselves in this movie, the names on the screen would be our real names. I would be the director, but I'm not really sure who the writer is. We'll just have to leave that part blank. It's not like I'm actually writing my own life. I'm just living it. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. All right, next up we have Cecil Castellucci, who is, in addition to being a young adult author, um, who has read here many times, uh, also works as one of our event hosts sometimes, which we're very grateful for. And uh, recently she just announced that she's a judge for the Young People's Category in the National Book Awards this year, which is really exciting. She's here today to read from a poem. Come on up, Cecil. Um, I've only written three, three poems, uh, and I have them all here, so um, they're all small, so I might read them all. Um, <clears throat> I've never read my poems ever out loud, so this is a first. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Okay, this one's called Cassandra Speaks. I'd like to tell you something. I think your husband is ugly. I don't say it in a mean way. I say it as an observer and as someone who doesn't like you. It's not his fault, the bad skin or thin hair, but I assume he did have a voice when it came to the choosing of you. I know you played him, poor guy. I'd like to warn him. It must bother you that I can see plainly that all the straw you weave is just still straw, no matter how much of it you try to pass off as gold. I always point it out to friends and strangers how sad you are with your made-up face and plastic smile, beautiful like a heartless doll. I try to remember that while I was actually wounded in the war, you just like to play at being killed. So what a disappointment that when I finally met you, I saw your hat was made of felt, not silk, and you looked like anyone else, but still, you play the part beautifully. Okay, this one is called Eavesdropping on Thumbelina. I didn't mind telling the story about my heart to my friend the bartender with the regulars sitting next to me listening in while nursing their fourth pints, house wines, vodka tonics, and scotches neat. I'm sure that I've told so many of my secrets to her right out loud sitting at that bar with the regulars leaning on their elbows staring ahead with glassy eyes hearing me when I'm hopeful or sad cheerful or angry cautious or hurt this time most likely they are happy for me listening in not meaning to eavesdrop on my heart which feels brand new and calmly hopeful while trying to make sense of that night 
They now know, even if you don't, that I'm okay with whatever it was, even if it was just a one-time thing and not forever. Although, for the record, I'm pulling for forever. Those drunks, they probably wish they could say, Thumbelina, I hope it works out for you. But instead, they nod in that silent way that drunks do, which really means, cheers, little lady. And then they take another sip or order another drunk, another drink, and I should probably say to them just this once, boys, this round is on me. (laughs) Okay, this is my last poem of the three poems I've ever written. (laughs) Poem for Bridget on her birthday in honor of her muse, the wild boy. When I was wild in the woods with dirt and trees, I did not sing. Instead, I chirped like a bird, but never found a mate, although I tweeted like the rest of them, and there were feathers in my hair. In the parlor now, I am wearing blue, with hair so short I never feel warm. At the party, they stand me by the piano. Everyone can see what I look like, a real boy. I move my hands like wings and bob my head. They nod hello. My mistress, who begs me to call her mother, sits next to me to play a tune. I repeat the sounds she taught me, I am told, over and over again, that it is a beautiful song. But in my heart, I am a bird, with a nest for a bed, and feathers for hair, not singing, still chirping. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love you, Skylight Books. Thanks, Cecil. Cecil's latest book is You're the Beasts, and her next one coming out in May is called Odd Duck, and we have many of her titles over there on that table. Um, Actually, while we're talking about that table uh, and our band sets up, who's our next act, cue band, to start setting up, um, we have on the left side of the table, in addition to some beverages, please help yourself, uh, we have some selected books and and other things that uh, you can purchase up at the counter. And then on the right side, uh, we have some zines, some CDs, uh, and those are sort of, you know, pay or barter, you know, what you will. Uh, and that's all by our staff. And uh, so please take a look after the event is over. How is our band doing on setting up? This is Staff Juice. Uh, staff Juice is the Skylight Staff Band. It's had many iterations over the years. We have Darren Clavidasher, who used to work here, now works at Earth 2. Dan Kusunoki. <laughs> Woo! Who's our graphic novel guy. If you've ever bought a graphic novel, you've probably talked to Dan. And uh, we have Arlo Clara down there. He is uh, receiving and returns uh, person. And then, woo! And Jake Rosenzweig over here on base. Uh, he is one of our newer staffers. And uh, are you guys ready? All right, staff juice. Oops, no, not staff juice. It's okay. <laughs> All right. Like cra- I feel like craft work or something. We are a machine. We are a machine. I don't know. The mic's not going to work like this. Maybe this should. Maybe I just shouldn't do the mic. It's just this. This. Yeah, but I have a cane. Hey now, I'm a rock star. Hi guys. How's everybody doing? Uh, hey, yay. Where's Justin? Everybody say hi to Justin. Um, Staff juice, well, I started here in 2008. Um, 
uh, when my marriage fall, fell apart and I was angry all the time. And uh, this was kind of the perfect place to be. And um, met Kev, who was super chill. KKB, who was always smiling. Charles, who was always feeling things so very deeply. And um, Steve, who was just Steve. Yeah. And it was just Steve. And um, and then one, you know, one of the people who was here, um, who I love, who's you know passed away, is Justin uh, Jasper, who um, is a god among men. Is a god among men. And um, one thing about Justin was he wasn't polite and he wasn't neat and he was messy and he swore a lot. And um, and this song is going to be all of those things. And I see. I can't go back and pick a different song now because this is the one that I've been sort of, we've been working on, but um, sorry, you're all sitting in your chairs and looking so sweet. Um, and I'm going to probably bang on things and scream and cry. And I, are there still children here? Yes. <sighs> Shit. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Anyway, staff use is just about keeping it real. So, um, so I'm going to keep Daniel. All right, how you doing, Arlo? Okay, so um, I'm going to do my best, and I might screw up the words. I might screw some things up. Some some things might come out of my mouth I didn't intend. Um, we we might all mess up, but that's kind of the magic of staff use. If, if anyone's ever seen us, um, so uh, you, you ready, Arlo? I wonder how this story ends. Everybody said to me, oh baby, oh, just can't you see? It's time for you to start again. It's time for you to make a brand new friend. Friend, 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 friend. Time to make a friend. friend. Friend, 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 time to make a friend. A friend? Yeah. Do you remember when you and I were just best friends? I called you up so late at night. We were talking to the morning light. Your voice sounded just like mine. Your fears and dreams were just like mine. And everything just moved in time. Everything just felt like life. 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 We were living life. 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 
life, 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 life. We will live a life. You moved away, they said. I don't know where it was they went, but when I tried to find it all, I looked at walls and I had to shout. And I knew you weren't coming back, and I knew that I was just feeling down, 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 down. Everything's going down. Everything's going down, 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 down. Everything's going down, it's going down. What was it that we used to say about the things we do someday? And if I ever thought you and I would never meet again, and then you said to me, it's time for you to let me be. And all I want to say to you is why don't you kiss my little ass, you little bitch, you fucking cunt. I'm gonna kick you in the pussy with my steel toe boots and make it fun. The song is turning into shit. I don't know why I'm doing this, but I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. You and your fucking hair.
gentlemen, we are Staff Goose, and we have rocked you tonight. And now I have shipping to do, so uh, thanks, everyone. <laughs> Justin Jasper. My name is Thomas. Yeah, we never know what we're going to get with staff juice. And uh, this is no exception. Wow. All right, so as staff juice does just a little bit of cleanup. Um, I wanted to introduce some of our visual art that we have here, um, because not all of our not all of our staffers are performers. Uh, so, here I have my cheat sheet here. Uh, this piece right here in leather is a scooter called Lambretta by Frida Gossett. She's our sidelines buyer and uh, bookseller extraordinaire. Uh, we also have some drawings by Jen Witte. Uh, so we have Time Machine over here, a self-portrait with Migraine, which is the Frankenstein drawing, and then a uh, portrait she did of our coworker Aaron. Um, Arlo, who was just on guitar, did these flyers right here. Noelle Lumet, who we'll be hearing from a little bit later, did this painting called Buddha Figure. And Gustavo Turner did the photograph right up there, uh, which is called Yellow and Black Abstraction. And please feel free to come up and take a closer look at some of our visual art uh, after the show. So let me try to get this back into place here. And then we're going to bring up another reader as soon as we can. <laughs> yeah, please help yourself in addition to the beer to a gumball. Unfortunately, they are sugar-free, which is why we hadn't eaten them yet. So it's a little bit less fun. Thank you, Steve. Okay, so I think that's enough cleanup to uh, to get us going on with the show. Uh, next up, we have our staffer Megan Wade. She, in addition to working as our bookkeeper, is also been taking care of our political science section. Uh, her nonfiction has been published in the Journal of Aesthetics and Protest, but tonight she's here with a poem. So let's give her a warm welcome for Megan Wade. Yeah, I could not believe when they told me I was reading after statues, and now you understand why that was a very frightening thing to learn, because I have to follow that. Um, I think we should give them another round of applause, because that was pretty awesome. Um, so a lot of folks know that moving to Los Angeles was a really difficult thing for me, and the poem that I am reading tonight is sort of about that fact. So as we all feel a little misplaced amongst the gumballs, this is a poem for feeling, for, for feeling misplaced. It's called For Others Who Are Not From Here Either. We are so many of us, immigrants here, 
Few of us growing up in the ways of this city. I know you, the Midwestern New York diaspora. You wonder how you found yourselves here. You try to get your grip, but just like those who come from countries south and west, you can't shake the feeling that this is its own nation, a place with customs that frequently escape you and that on your arrival, you were not given the requisite map of understanding. I have seen, as you begin to realize the particular cruelty of Los Angeles, how it exercises a brutality so different from the winter industrial pains of other cities further north, the very ground tearing at you as though it could not get over the fact that it was meant to be a desert. And no matter how much water is diverted and how many houses of paradise built up to disguise its dusty past, the sticky dirt drifts in from the beach and the hills alike, it cakes itself into one's brain, gets caught in the eyes, makes it even harder to see in the sharp glare of the sun, makes one lost and batty and worn down and right as you go out seeking some rest. It's streams of concrete come rushing along, push one to move, to run fast in the rush of automobiles without ever relieving the parched ache in one's eyes and throat. All the lush plants upon its path is decorative alone and providing no solve or comfort, no soil for greater rooting. Angelinos, do you not miss the smell of damp earth? Yet we come here and we leave behind whatever thick, tangled, and beloved foliage grows in our past, leave the nourishment of other lands, and come instead seeking something in this acidic streetscape. We all come here striving, striving until we are all bandinis here, two selves wrestling, our high hopes turned to rough words with strangers and unstable wealth. We become twins of ego and self-loathing, pouring ourselves empty, insane into the streets, friendless but seeking only sex instead, returning to lonely rooms with our half-hearted passions still unquenched, where once again we pin first the good, then the bad self, never sure who will exit that door tomorrow and assume our name downtown. Yes, we enter each day into this barbed land called Southern California, its thorns hidden in the brittle leaves choking the valleys, covering dead branches to knock you down into the dust. It is a land meant for spooks, for shadeless trees that seek to stop their endless drought in a nighttime stretching for the sea. That sea its coolness so close, yet its water is not for us. We find only its salts crusted up on rocks, ready to scrape, to cut the hands that stray too close, and still more salt at the bottom of dry stream beds. And when we walk, we see the thirsty. Our future ghosts pass us on the streets and we ignore their requests for change. The jingling rhythm of their shopping cart rants try to look away from the truth they bear in their lopsided faces about the meaning of this place. The truth itself is a little shaky here, and when we bring it out for air and light, it will take a dive stumble down these streets to its death. Or at best, it turns to drink and spends its life looking for shade, for some escape from the never-ceasing sun. Yes, there is so much light here, we must all hide ourselves away, locked in cars and tiny houses, so much light that this city has made me a sneak. Nothing put out to share, so I snatch at what has been kept private, held in the dark. I look for the cracked doors and alleyways, find hidden entrances, see that every bar is a speakeasy, venture in cautiously, and when I leave, I seek the shadows, avoid the whir above of the police, those hundreds of vengeance in their skyborne squad cars, their endless patrols pursuing unknown nameless fears. What mirage of hope binds us here to you, Los Angeles? What hidden floral musk lures us in for another year? You tell me it is Jasmine, but I don't believe you. The dust of your dying past promises has yet to settle fully on the ground. I have not forgotten the nearby forest and its blackened pine bones. And I have not forgotten that behind your honeyed smell is the reek of your streets and your cast-offs, mildewed mattresses, splintering headboards, furniture that makes a home for feral cats home. 
Is that a word you know? It was a word we knew once before, when we were back east or up north or from the south or by the lakes. A word we remember as we are here, homeless and striving nonetheless, breathing in what precious sense we can find between the gas fumes, substituting showers of jacarandas for rain, reaching for every scrap of human touch, your concrete edges would assure a word we rebuild as we are finding one another, as we find one another, and we are here because of one another. And if that is why we stay, <laughs> that is why we stay. And if you will not offer us solace in your shade, we will make our own. For if the truth is shaky, then it is also moldable. And we will remap and remake and remold. And we may perish like the many before us who have tried to do the same. But you will have to fight us every step of the way. Holy shit! she's super good at math, which seems totally unfair to me. Like, that's, that's not right. All right, so next up we have David Gonzalez, who's another new staff member. Uh, he also recently just got, <laughs> oh, the poor cleanup, the poor floor, um, recently got his MFA from Florida International University, so we're very excited for him about that, and he's going to be reading in, uh, part of a short story. Welcome, David. Hello. Uh, so my name is David, and I just moved to LA four months ago, and I got started working here at Skylight three months ago. Uh, so I'm very happy to be here. I'm not actually going to read a short story. Instead, I'm going to read this nonfiction thing that I wrote. It's the first uh, piece I ever creative writing piece I ever published. Um, and all I'll say, it's really it's um, uh, it's about my family. Um, we own a, we own two restaurants in South Florida. Have for 15 years. And uh, spoiler alert: it's about the time our restaurant burned down. Um, I'm going to read a few excerpts, but if you like, we have zines here that I made together with my lovely girlfriend at her insistence. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, this is, this is um, it's told in sections, so I'm going to read a, a few sections at the front and then a few at the back, and I'll leave the middle to your imagination. Um, okay, so this is called How Can I Help You? <clears throat> Closing time. On January 1st, 2004, my family's restaurant, the Lighthouse Cafe, burned down, down to the ground. No one saw what happened, but fire reports indicated that it started out on the entrance ramp and that the fire wasn't a result of anything electrical or gas-related. Thing is, we're located inside Bill Bagg's Cape Florida State Park, a 400-acre tract of land on the southeast side of Key Biscayne, a small barrier island that doubles as one of Miami's wealthiest communities. With over a mile of pristine Atlantic shoreline shaping the park's face like a jaw, it's easy to disregard the gated entrance and walk right up the beach and find us. With no night patrols or cameras or anything of the sort, there's no way of knowing how the fire got started. It could have been anything, maybe fireworks or a cigar or maybe a man with a dastardly mustache alone on a New Year's night with a box of both. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was started by a small grill left unattended, a set of lovers abandoning grilled mango wedges or a tuna steak cut into strips, anything. The air was dry the night it happened. Could have been real trouble for the park when the propane tanks blew, but fortunately there wasn't much of a breeze and the fire barely budged. 
and just burned and burned and burned, standing still and straight up like a meteorite had hit the restaurant and left it smoldering. Or like the whole of earth in front of you was the giant head of a matchstick and you were standing on it. And as you watched it burned and it melted away your heart and your work and the tears in your eyes broke free, you knew that this fire and everything that went with it was just as much a part of you as you were of it. How many are in your party? The first time Cuban refugees floated to our shore was crazy. They arrived on a raft of six inner tubes latched together with reinforced roofing panels on the bottom and on the sides, a small canoe in the middle, a tent for a makeshift sail, and garbage cans tied to the outside with oars in each pocket. Two men, three women, and a child aged about 10. They didn't know what day it was, but when we told them, we learned they had left the island 27 days earlier. We gave them ham and eggs and bread and fruits and coffee and water and anything else they asked for, but they didn't eat much. And what they did eat, they ate with little gusto. In fact, they didn't do much of anything. They didn't laugh or cry or tell stories or scream or jump. They didn't even seem happy to be here on sweet, sodded land and no longer at sea. They were safe now, but they barely seemed relieved. They weren't even in a rush to use their telephone to call their families. One of the men, face wrinkled like a raisin, gave his thanks to my father and then apologized. Everything was delicious, he said. We just feel a little like ghosts right now. A brief history of my father. Stops going to school in the fourth grade to work the sugarcane. He leaves Cuba without his parents. Flies to Costa Rica, then Mexico, then New York, where he spends a majority of his time working in supermarkets, dabbling in Santeria, and staying away from the Italians that someone told him kept lions in their basements for anyone who double-crossed them. <laughs> Meets my mother in Miami. Has a car and a job as a butcher in a supermarket six blocks from where she goes to high school. Her name means queen in Spanish and sees she's embarrassed to go to the market where he works lest her friends figure out who she's dating. Marries her. Crashes the car twice because he's been drinking. Fathers me. Crashes the car again. Fathers my brother. Manages a discount store that his uncle owns. Manages two. Manages two, then snags part ownership in a third. Buys his family a house on the outskirts of the Everglades. Builds them a swimming pool. Plants coconut trees in the yard. Lime trees, mango, guava, orange, grapefruit. Fences off the backyard and turns it into a giant coop where he raises chickens, turkeys, pheasants, and geese. Masters two dogs, a Doberman pincher named Princess and a rat terrier he calls Little Ball. <laughs> Quits his job. Opens Marlin's Seafood Bar and Grill next door to a Jiffy Lube. <laughs> Sells it. Opens Lighthouse Cafe in the summer of 1996. Earns $7 on his first day. Gets diabetes. Spends nights at a 24-hour Home Depot because he has trouble sleeping. Turns 60, grows a beard, and it's white all around. The dream. I know the definition of the American dream. The white picket fence, the dogs, the kids, the shy, modest smiles that light lives well lived. But I don't know if I've ever seen it. 
Growing up, I never knew anyone that lived that happy. The version I saw in the families around me was a Cadillac under a carport, a batting cage for your two boys, a boat, a private exercise room, and two dogs, a mean son of a bitch and a softy. <laughs> and that's what Nelson had. Not a particularly menacing name, I know, but his last name was Montpierre. Say it together, it has a nice ring to it. He had light eyes and was balding. The sun had long had its way with his skin, but his stare was cold and vacant. He never worked for the restaurant, but he worked as a park ranger. His job was to run prisoners in the work release program from task to task, from picking up the trash to cleaning up the bathrooms to doing any of the extreme gardening that didn't require the thoughtful hands of the botanist. Not part of his job description was extorting money from the convicts. $40 allowed you the use of his cell phone. For $60, he'd arrange a conjugal visit, and $100 guaranteed you a ride back to prison. When one of the inmates got the park manager's attention and pointed to the letters FBI towed into the sand, the park manager had no idea what it meant. What it meant was Nelson Montpierre was being set up. When he decided to lean on one of the inmates for $2,500 in order to stay in the program, an FBI agent posed as the man's wife. She fetched Montpierre a check for $500 and two individual money orders for the rest, which he promptly cashed, one, two, three. In the end, some other stuff came loose during Nelson's shakedown. You know what kind of stuff. The kind of stuff you may have tucked towards the back of your mind the moment you started reading about Nelson Montpierre. The kind of stuff people believe can help them buy a Cadillac and a batting cage and two dogs on a modest park ranger salary. How many are in your party part two? In the 12 years since we've been, it's been 15 now, 12 since I wrote it. Uh, in the 12 years since we've been operating the concessions in Cape Florida, we've had close to 30 incidents with either Cuban or Haitian refugees. My family has lived inside of the park the entire time, and one night, after an enthusiastic evening of drinking and carousing, my brother and I and a small clutch of friends arrived at the entrance to the park to find cops, paramedics, border patrol, and television reporters. The cops surrounded us, made for their pistols immediately. They shouted orders and we all raised our hands, told the cops that we lived inside there and that if he'd let me reach for my wallet, I'd show him my ID with the park's address on it. He asked me for the phone number, called my house, asked my mom if we were her kids. Is everything okay? I asked him. Everything is not okay, he said. We got a shit ton of Haitians loose in the park right now. Don't even think about picking anyone up. You go from here to your house and your friends leave immediately. The chopper is gonna make sure of it. The noise from the helicopter blade sounded fake. The giant spotlight flanned us out like we were in a movie, Close Encounters or something like that, like we were about to be nagged by extraterrestrials and it followed us all the way to my house. All the while, we laughed like hyenas. So I'm gonna skip a bunch, I'm just gonna get to the end now. Um, so this is, uh, this section is called Cienfuegos, 100 Fires. We opened the restaurant in June of 2007. My mother, together with the park manager, planned the party. 
We had a giant vinyl banner announcing the event, rented two large white tents, ordered flowers and tables, hired bartenders, and though our kitchen provided the food, we sought the help of professional servers, pretty people with cummerbunds and bow ties. <laughs> to commemorate the event, we bottled our hot sauce. It's homemade, it's fantastic. Uh, to commemorate the event, we bottled our hot sauce, called it Cienfuegos, a hundred fires, and we created a label for it that told the story of the burning down. Aside from scotch bonnet peppers, the label also included a, a list of fake ingredients like rainwater, jellyfish tentacles, tropical storm force winds, the immigrant experience, and candy papaya. My mother asked me to say something, to give a speech to the hundred plus guests and save my father from his fear of public speaking. And I did. I said thanks to those that helped us rebuild, thanks to the customers that stayed loyal to us during those years, that this was a proud moment for my family. Three years ago, we never could have foreseen this moment and we hope to see everyone again real soon. As soon as the applause died down, my father stepped to the microphone as if I had missed the point entirely and gave his speech in Spanish to those who could understand. Directions, how to find us. Take the Rickenbacker Causeway past Hobie Beach where my grandfather pulled his car over and died for the first time. Continue on the bridge where my grandmother flagged down the paramedics that revived him. Past the Rusty Pelican, past Marine Stadium, past the forgotten Planet Ocean, a crappy ocean-themed science park where its best attraction was a disembodied chunk of iceberg sitting right at the entrance. <laughs> past the Miami Seaquarium where I kissed Nicole near the remote control boats. Past Crandon Park and the remains of the old zoo. Past the site of the Sony Ericsson tennis tournament. It was called the Lipton when my mother took me to go see Andre Agassi. But my mother took me to see Andre Agassi and told me that being great is easy. It's the work it takes to get there that isn't. <laughs> Once you enter the village of Kibiscane, you'll be on Crandon Boulevard. Everything on the key connects back to Crandon. The bookstore I used to work at, where the only things we sold were foreign newspapers and required reading books. The rec center where my mom decided she needed to take yoga lessons and the Chamber of Commerce building where my father joined on the advice of residents on the quay. Their smiles lathered up in old money, my father nodding his head and laughing because really he has little idea what they're saying. <laughs> the turnoff for Nixon's old house, the blockbuster video store, the Italian bistro where my ex-girlfriend's father used to work. The father she hadn't seen in eight years until we walked in for dinner that one night. You can get to all these places from Crandon, but you're not going to want to. You're going to want to keep heading straight until you reach the very end of Key Biscayne. There, you'll find the entrance to Cape Florida. Roll on up to the guard gate, let them know you're here to see us, and they'll let you in without paying. Thank you, guys. Thank you, David. All right, uh, next up and second to last, we have Noel Lumet, who is a novelist, and you've also seen him here at lots of our other events. Um, he takes over a lot of hosting duties, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and he is the author of Talking to the Moon and Letters to Montgomery Clift, which we also have over on that table. He's going to be accompanied by Jake Rosenzweig on bass. 
Do you need to come in through here? Yeah. All right. I'm going to make some room for. Thanks. All right. So let's bring these guys up here with a big round of applause. Noelle Lumet, Jake Rosenzweig. Hi, everybody. I'm really happy to be here. I wanted to, uh, to show you that, that painting, the Buddha figure. Um, there was a journey to that painting that um, I fictionalized in a short story. It's called Laconic Messages of Love, um, and I'm very happy to say it was uh, recently anthologized in uh, Best, Gay Sh Best Gay Short Stories 2012. So. Hmm? You'd sung the Kyrie at 9 a.m. every Sunday morning for the past four years. You'd sung this hymn, one that had asked God and Jesus for mercy well over 200 times. It had lost meaning for you. This time, during this Mass, you want the words to mean something, not because it was Thanksgiving Mass and they should mean something, not because hundreds of people were expected to attend, but because this would be the very last time you would sing the Kyrie with this choir. The choir robe you wore was uncomfortable. You had lifted the robe above your knees, letting cool air ride up your crotch. The worst thing about sitting up in the choir loft was that all of the heat rose to where you were. Underneath your robe, you worried that the heat would dull the creases you meticulously ironed into your pant legs. You squeezed rosaries in your hand, enjoying the crunching sound they made. You were quite good at reciting the prayers of the rosary, which included 53 Hail Marys, six Our Fathers, six Glory Bees, and the Apostles' Creed. The entire process lasted 40 minutes. You were proud of the fact that you could do it all under five. In one breath, you could squeeze out three Hail Marys. Your family wanted you to enter the seminary. They somehow knew you would never marry. Priesthood was the only logical choice. The priesthood was an occupation every good Catholic boy had considered at one point or another. But earlier this year, when you experienced the pleasures of the flesh by being kissed by a man for the very first time, you knew the priesthood was not for you. It was that kiss that made you decide to leave the choir. It was that kiss that helped you see God. You had always been a great admirer of great Catholics. You were familiar with the lives of many saints. But it was the modern Catholics you followed. You clipped out stories from People magazine of Corazon Aquino. You still grieve the death of Mother Teresa. And you kept a picture of Pope John Paul on your bedroom wall. 
you are happy to hear of Pope John Paul acknowledging gays in the church. It was okay to be homosexual, but it was a sin to engage in homosexual acts. So when you went to the gay bars, as long as you didn't dance with a man, you wouldn't be sinning. Frankly, as much as you wanted to, you never danced at all. You had been doing this since you turned 21, being gay, going to gay places, but careful not to engage in any gay behavior. You made it a point to dress and behave masculinely. You kept your hair conservatively short. And no matter how lonely you felt, no matter how your heart ached for companionship, you never touched another man unless it was a handshake. Until a stranger bumped into you in a bar in West Hollywood. It was dark and the stranger mistook you for someone else. The stranger uttered someone's name and you gave a hug. Your body recoiled into itself and you made a quick mental prayer noting that you are not hugging this man back. God, please know this is not a homosexual act. The stranger's hug was odd. It was not sexual, nor was it friendly. It was simply polite, barely touching. But you were aware of the fact that you were being entirely enveloped. The stranger pulled away, and a strobe light had fixed itself onto your face, blinding you. You squinted, trying to see, but the strobe light was, was harsh. You were able to see only when the stranger tilted his head to the left, interfering with the fierce light. As you blinked, trying to regain your vision, the strobe light had created a curious glow behind the stranger's head. You said, you have the wrong person. I don't know you. The stranger said, Maybe someday you will. You had heard many pickup lines before, and what this man said would have been one of those lines if it weren't for the fact he said it. There was a, a hint of seduct there wasn't a hint of seduction, a note of sexual foreplay in this line. The stranger's voice was smooth. If Velvet had a sound, this would certainly be it. The stranger lifted your hand. You saw your hand disappear into the blackness of a silhouette. You felt the stranger's lips rest on the knuckle connecting to the forefinger. A gentle kiss, rather motherly, the kind given to a sleeping baby. In a kiss, in a club, with cigarette smoke rolling past bl like blue waves, music blaring, songs spewing, laconic messages of love, people dancing to a confined claustrophobic space, you felt the presence of God, an overwhelming sense of calmness, a kind of relief, the perception that you would never be hurt, and the belief that you would always be protected. For the first time in your life, you understood the meaning of the word word free 
As quickly as it came, the kiss was over. The moment was gone, and so was the stranger, departing, disappearing into bobbing heads, matching the beat of the music. The following week, you announced to your choir that you would be leaving. When one of the members asked you why, you simply said it was time to move on. You didn't say what you truly felt. You didn't say that you had met God, not in a church with an emaciated man on a cross, not in a hymn centuries old, but in a smoky club where the men danced with each other. For the first, for the very first time, sitting in the choir loft, you understood the Kyrie, which had all of three lines. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. In the fleeting moments of mass, you knew mercy had been granted. Thank you. Thank you, Noel. Uh, and now for our last performance tonight, and I do have to give, it's, it's going to be Jake, and I have to give him a little extra credit, is as much as I would love to claim that I put this all together. It wasn't me, it was Jake here, who went around, got everyone involved, and I'm really glad that he did. So he's going to be playing us out with a solo bass improvisation. Wow. Maybe you can hear. Good. Uh, since I was 13, it's about a year. <laughs> Is that even coming through? Probably not. Thank you. 
Okay, thank you, Jake, and thank you to all of our performers tonight, and thank you all for coming out and getting to know your local booksellers. Uh, it's nice to see so many faces here. We're about to play some music over the stereo as you mingle and help us finish this beer and wine, uh, and it's uh, recorded uh, songs by uh, Charles, who's our book buyer under the name Bad Chucky, Carl Bauer, Jake, uh, Fragile Gang, who's part of the band that you saw here today as Staff Juice, and Uke Fink, who's Steve's band. So listen, enjoy, watch, get some zines. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.